This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. We're coming up to a holiday time. You may be looking forward to going away and then you come home again. And do you wonder what you've achieved? Was it rest, excitement, learning or self-discovery? Lynn Drummond has travelled the world and this is her second book, Painters, Philosophers and Poets Sustain a Seven Year Cycle. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you for having me. Great to be back. Not I so used much. to work here. I know. <laughs> you, you're back to 3CR. When did you work here? Uh, would have been about six months, six or seven months in 2017. And then I went overseas to Europe. Okay. But your home was originally in England with your mum who gave you some good advice when you were only 15 years old. What was that? It's, very, it's one of the features of the, my latest book. In fact, it's the opening chapter. I was born in the UK. Um, I was born in the port of Harwich, which is um, quite a big port, actually, although it's, always, it's also one of those places that people used to say goes nowhere except the sea. So I was very keen to get overseas when I immigrated to Australia when I was 20. But my mother, my late mother, when I was about 15, and at school, obviously, she suggested that I write to the editor of the local newspaper, as English was my best subject, and see if there was any work. Well, and I said to her, oh, cynically, you know, what do you mean there's any work? I don't finish school for another, God knows, two years, another one or two years. She said, well, um, I've just been reading that the, the journalist who's there at the moment in the local paper, the Harridge and Manningtree Standard, has actually become engaged to a British soldier. Mm, I said, cynically. <laughs> and she said, you never know, he could get posted next year, perhaps, when you're 16, you say you don't want to stay on at school, so why don't you write to the editor now? Oh, all right. So I did. And the editor said, of course, um, well, nothing happening at the moment, but keep in touch. And, you know, a year later, that particular journalist, who was then 24 and I was only 16, got enga- was he, who was engaged to the soldier, he, she married him and he got a posting to Germany. And the editor got in touch and offered me a temporary trial as a cadet journalist on the newspaper. So this journalism that you did over the years and a master's in in international relations have taken you around the world. Have you counted up how many different jobs you've had? (laughs) I try not to actually. (laughs) I've probably counted how many homes I've lived in occasionally which is many many homes but they all related to usually always related to work. Um, I started off in journalism. I've always been a journalist, if you like. That's probably the main constant in my life. Even if I was working in other areas, I was always freelancing. And I had a long career in the public service, the federal government, and I was about all some 16 years in the foreign affairs and trade, and I had foreign service postings overseas in Brussels and in Budapest. And I also taught English as a second language in many countries as well. The reasons I've been going overseas, I've always, as I said, usually work-related. Once it was personal because I wanted to live closer to my mother in England because of health issues and I took up a, a second career, if you like, as a teacher and of teaching the language, the English language. And that gave me, if you like, a mobile passport to well, the world. With this mobile passport, you must have pick up, picked up quite a few languages. How many well, do you speak? <laughs> I'm very guilty to say that no. I, because the places I was going to teach language in, many, many countries, you don't need the language of the country. But... It does help a bit. I do have, obviously, native English, but I also have intermediate French, which 
isn't really enough. You need to pass a state exam in France, but I got by. And, of course, there's this very strange, difficult language called Hungarian, mm -hmm. which I have tussled with Hungarian for quite a long time off and on. I was only there for about four years initially when I got a posting to the Australian Embassy in Budapest. I took lessons then. The Australian Embassy offered me lessons then. But I just didn't make much progress and the, the teacher who taught me didn't help much because she'd teach me strange things like how to rob a bank. <laughs> and, you know, the wages were so low then that I actually, well, could have thought about that. But So I t gave that up. And it's one of those languages that really stands alone. It's not like the Finnish language. The syntax isn't like the Finnish mm -hmm. language. But the people who learnt it best, I found, were the Koreans for oh, some dear. reason. You, the language is likened to the Rubik Cube. What's the connection there? Well, this was, a, this was an observation that was made in my, my latest book by someone I interviewed, Rachel Appleby, who is actually the voiceover for much of the English that is spoken on public transport, etc., in Budapest now. She's exceptionally good at what she does, and it's the first time for a long time that English has become part of the Hungarian language because Budapest is such a huge tourist mecca. And so Rachel actually said this to me. It was like the intricacies of a Rubik cube, but I'd never, ever heard that description before, but I can quite understand it because... You get so far and then you think you're getting somewhere and then it stops. And the language itself, like if my name isn't Lynn Drummond in Hungary, it's Drummond Lynn. <sighs> and you have all the endings of words, the very endings of sentences have to be learned. Mm -hmm. uh, honestly, I could go on and on about it. It's just, it is difficult, but I have lots of words and I can get by, survive. And so, yeah, and I guess that's something. <laughs> the, uh, the chap who actually invented the cube, Mr Rubik, yes, came from Hungary, as did Professor Catalan Carrico. Now, she should be acclaimed more. Yes, well, actually, just to say, Rubik still is obviously still living in, Ru in Hungary and he's coming out with other inventions, apparently. Catalan Carrico, which is featured in my latest book, she represents someone that I describe as achieving individuation. Individuation was a Carl Jung philosophy that it's about people who achieve something that's really significant, leaving a legacy for the world. And that's what I've been trying to achieve. But Katalin is Hungarian. She's a biochemist. She is the person behind the mRNA, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Mm. And for many, many years, she was her research was ignored. And she went to work from Hungary to universities and research centres in the United States. After being rejected, losing jobs, she finally was accepted for her research and she's come up with this amazing legacy relating to COVID. Well, Lynn, in all the countries you've lived and worked in, you've written about historic and contemporary people who you say, and this is a quote from the book, have taken risks, dared to be different. They had a belief in ignored their critics and followed their own arduous paths. An example of this was Baroque Spinoza. You went to the museum because he'd been excommunicated. Yes. But Einstein wrote a poem about Spinoza. I've never known Einstein as a poet on page 39. That's right. Yes, the interesting part of the finding that I was had been living in place of very famous people who lived was I didn't actually know that until I left the place, the most significant place I worked for those, as I lived, for this uh, knowledge to, to emerge 
was in um, an area of The Hague called Dunabiacada, where in fact people like Van Gogh had their first gallery. And Spinoza, who's a 17th century philosopher, he lived around the corner from where I lived. And I became intrigued by Spinoza, not only just because of the fact that he lived near me, but a student friend of mine, this is when I was teaching English not so long ago, gave me a book on Spinoza. And what happened is I just became more and more interested in him. And in December 2018, a friend and I went to his house. It's in Rheinsberg, which is some distance from The Hague. And it's actually in suburbia. Spinoza believed in the whole concept of God and nature being linked. He had some very radical ideas according to his Jewish community. And that was one of the reasons it was said that he was excommunicated from the Jewish community because of his Spinozaism, which is a fo- people follow today. But when a friend of mine in December 2018 and myself went to his house in Rheinsberg, I found that so much more about him, including this poem written by Einstein, Albert Einstein, who'd actually visited the Spinoza Museum in 1920. And he said... How much do I love that noble man, more than I could tell with words. I fear, though, he'll remain alone with a holy halo of his own. And there it is. It sits in the the Spinoza house. Well, of course, you were working in The Hague, which was lucky because it is also called the Centre for Volunteerism, where people don't get paid. And I, But one of the courses you did there I thought had the most incredible title, The Investigative journalism in countries with media censorship. And I thought, oh, wow. Oh, golly. So we, we do hear about other trips you did at Round and About and about prostitution, the drugs legally in Amsterdam and why there's photos of Audrey Hepburn all around and the biography of Marta Hari and the connection Amsterdam has with Peter the Great of Russia. But it was also around in the Netherlands, there was the 500 kilometres of Honey Highway. And this is what connects you, your affinity with nature. And it was also in France, too, that you, you saw the beauty. You could understand why, why Paul Cézanne was influenced and painted Mount St. Victor so much. And also you understood Van Gogh and you did the his walk around Arles. You've seen and done and, and done a lot. Yes, well, some of the, the, the one of the things about the book, it's... There's actually two. This is a sequel to the previous one. This one's called, the first one was called Where to Go for a Seven-Year Cycle. And it was very much focused on the region I'd lived in, which was Central and Eastern Europe when I was first posted, when I first went to Budapest, when I took up the job at the Australian Embassy as their public affairs manager. And I didn't know much about Eastern Europe at all at the time. So the first book is more of a, I suppose a little bit sort of off the tourist beat stories. Um, it's also about the search for home. It, it's not a travel book in the sense that it has places which connect con- with contact details, but an explanation of a region that I previously had no particular interest in. And it goes on to describe the, uh, various other aspects to the seven years that I was there. Seven years, prob- sorry, the seven years that I cover in the first book, which is from 2003 to 2010, a seven-year cycle that philosophers like Jung also used to talk about. And the second book 
painters, philosophers and poets sustain a seven-year cycle is a sequel to this, and that covers the period 2011 to 2018 with an, with an epilogue about to, uh, 2022. And you were telling me that the best place to get the books is uh, under your name, Lynn Drummond, if or, you, yes, yes, or if the publisher, Ginindera Press in Adelaide. Well, Lynn Drummond has lived and worked in many places around the world. She has written about the people, historical and contemporary, who live there too, in painters, philosophers and poets, sustain a seven-year cycle. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Jan. Thank you, Lynn. Now, here is my pre-record with Robbie Arnott and his novel Limberlost. There is often an unspoken discourse amongst people, and Robbie Arnott's latest book, Limberlost, touches on what is left unsaid. So, Robbie, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks, David. It's great to be here. I want to start with Tasmania and its history, because this novel encompasses an arc over time of of what's taken place in Tasmania. It was once known as the Apple Isle. The book opens on on an orchard in the Tamo Valley. But we also have the social conditions of the time going out rabbiting, and there's a history there. Yeah, very much so. So a lot of those iconic slouch hats you see Australian soldiers wearing over the last hundred years or so were all made from rabbit or kangaroo skin, but often rabbit pelts. And because rabbits are an invasive introduced species, um, it's a way people could hunt them and remove them from the land while also making a bit of money. And we also then have a change in how we perceive Tasmania in some ways as the Apple Isle. They brought in pesticides. Yeah, like so many things, the new technologies that come into any any industry. Um, if you think about asbestos as a building material, it seems like a great idea at the time, but often there are ramifications. You don't find out it until years or decades later, and certain pesticides had that effect. Um, it's worth noting that um, there's still a lot of apples growing in Tasmania, but um, the Tamar Valley, where the book's set, is mostly vineyards now. And the other thing that comes up towards the end of the novel, Ben, is Indigenous dispossession, which seems to be something that has more resonance of late more than anything else. Yeah, that's a really, something that's really changed throughout Tasmanian, particularly settler Tasmanian culture over the last few decades. The understanding of Aboriginal Tasmania and Aboriginal Tasmanians is something that hasn't been addressed very well throughout the state's history. Um, there seems to be a broader understanding of it now, but it's still a bit of a generational uh, divide that you see in Tasmanian culture of um, people from older generations not quite understanding where younger generations are coming from because that knowledge has been swept away or ignored for so long. Into this landscape, then, we place Ned, a young adolescent, and he's able to earn a penny or two by hunting rabbits, but he loves keeping secrets it's almost what adolescents do in some way yeah i think so um he definitely does keep play his cards pretty close to his chest part of his reason he keeps secrets is because he's not a very good communicator and like many young men even today but particularly back in the 1940s when ned is growing up young men and women weren't really taught how to communicate with each other or how to articulate what they're feeling or what they want so it's a lot easier to just say nothing and pursue your goals quietly. So it's as much his inability to talk as it is his desire to keep things secret. 
but he has a couple of particular secrets, a quoll and a desire for a boat. What is a quoll? I don't know if all our listeners might be aware. Yeah, so he, he catches a particular type of quoll called a spotted tail quoll. They're um, slightly bigger than a cat and slightly more dangerous. And they're a native marsupial. They're the second largest carnivorous marsupial left after the Tasmanian devil. If they ever get their claws on a chicken or into a chicken coop, they'll do about twice as much damage as a fox. So Ned accidentally catches one. Rather than kill it, he decides to try and help rehabilitate it, even though it's trying to you know, rip his fingers and face off at every moment. So he has this quite fraught relationship with the quoll, but he just can't bring himself to kill it. And that secret desire for a boat, it sort of harks back to when his father took him out on the water to address this myth of a whale, which we'll come to shortly. But I love this little passage here because he's taken the quoll to the vet, but the vet challenges him. What were you saving for? Ned was watching the quoll shiver. Sorry? The money you're going to pay me with. What were you going to do with it? Just saving. Strange thing to do. Coming here asking favours, telling lies. Ned stared at her. I said I'd pay you. Not what I asked. I was going to give it to my father. Help out. I know you're old man. He won't take your money. Why do you care? Why are you lying? I want a boat. The vet smiled. And there was a curl of sadness on her lips. Or perhaps it was the shape of understanding. Of course you do. Ned's thoughts were swarming. It had been so simple, a bit of pressure, and his secret was revealed. He swore at himself. Within him, there was a gurgling churn in his throat and his organs and his pulse. He couldn't face what he told her, couldn't acknowledge what he'd revealed. He scrabbled at his pocket, tinkling his fingers through the mess of coins he brought. This secret desire, it, it's so unimportant and yet so essential for him to hold on to that secret and then it's so easy to reveal but it touches on how young boys can behave the character of ned has a great internal struggle going on and like many young people he feels everything very strongly and so he feels a desire to help his father out on the orchard because they are struggling his two older brothers are away at war and the orchard's not doing well so he has this great sense of responsibility and he also has this desire to have his own boat. Um, to him, a boat is a key. And they live on the banks of a river. And if he had his own boat, he can go anywhere up and down that river, sail anywhere, fish anywhere. It's the ultimate sense of freedom to him. And he has this huge hunger for it. But he's a bit ashamed about this because he feels it's a bit selfish to be wanting something that's just for him when he should be helping out on the orchard. And he these twin desires and responsibilities are chafing within him. And it's why he doesn't want to tell anybody, even though he's pursuing his goal. And he shouldn't really be ashamed of wanting a boat. And nobody's judging him harshly for it. But as is with the case with so many teenagers, he is judging himself extremely harshly. Now, I want to touch on the narrative and the way you've told this story. Because over the first three chapters, we have a decade later, 10 years later. And so, over the first three chapters, we almost cover three decades, if not more. But that gives you uh, the ability then almost to transcend time. You can step into the story over the course of the novel at different decades. Was it hard to grapple with or did it come naturally? Yeah, it was a bit tricky originally until I settled on the, on the format of the story, really, which was one chapter set in this pivotal summer in Ned's life and then a chapter set 
a period later with all these other all these other alternate chapters with Ned getting gradually older. Because I wanted to show the totality of his life and how he changed and how the lad changed around him, uh, many of which affected by his decisions. But I wanted to keep returning to this one pivotal summer of his life as a 15, 16-year-old and show how much it came to shape the rest of his existence and how what he did came to shape not only his own life, but the actual course of the valley he lives in. It seems so simple and it's so easy then for the reader to follow. You do it almost naturally. But in terms of that pivotal moment in his life, you begin the story with one particular moment about a whale. And it's almost mythic in proportion. It was believed a whale had gone mad at the mouth of the river. Several fishing boats had been destroyed in acts of violence so extraordinary that they were deemed inhuman. Each attack had come at dusk while the boats were passing the heads on their way back to port, the same area where plumes of spray were supposedly erupting from the water. Transport ships reported powerful, mournful vibrations ringing through their hulls. Gulls flew strangely, cormorants seemed skittish. Ocean swimmers' strokes were thrown out of rhythm by a high, ancient melody that rose through the brine. A fluke tail had been seen troubling the waves. It's almost mythic in proportion, this story or enigma of a whale. And what is the truth here? Yeah, very much so. And that's how I envisioned it. And it's generally how I always try to write, not necessarily in photorealistic detail of the world, but more how the world feels. And this story of the whale happens when Ned's around five. So it's this intense story that comes to shape much of his understanding of the world. But because it happens when he's five, he doesn't really remember it all that clearly. He just knows there's these stories of a whale smashing boats around the mouth of the river. And it's not clear to him how much of it is true, how much of it is false, how much of it is exaggerated. And I wanted to give those elements where we tell the story of the whale that sense of mythic awe because to a five-year-old that's how it feels and i wanted that to be true to ned's story as we follow him but it also comes to represent his father and how he wants to see his father as being able to address these sorts of uncertainties and unknowns but that falters as time goes on yeah and ned's father at least in ned's world is the only one who sees the truth of what's really going on with this so-called mad whale and He's the revealer of secrets and the the kind of holder of knowledge. And as Ned gets older, um, his father begins to struggle, particularly when his brothers are away at war. And Ned's father is a survivor of both Gallipoli and the Somme. And he's already struggling with what we would now call PTSD, but back then they would simply call shell shock. And he really struggles to hold himself together. And Ned doesn't know how to react to that doesn't know how to respond to this pillar of strength in his life suddenly crumbling away. But there's also an echo then at the end of the novel when Ned is talking with his daughters and his daughters are virtually challenging him about the Indigenous question. The landscape, again, has changed in that regard, the social circumstances and understanding. And Ned, as a father figure himself, has to address how he's perceived differently by his daughters. Yeah, much like his own father, Ned is, finds himself on unstable ground in an area he um, isn't very knowledgeable about and doesn't hold any authority. And 
it's very much a blind spot in Ned's life, this idea and understanding of Indigenous Tasmanians, as it is with many people of his generation and even down to my generation, this idea that we see ourselves as Tasmanians and we're so connected to the land and we feel so powerful and loyal to this island. Yet for many of us, there is this huge blind spot in our understanding of who it really belongs to. But also a blind spot in terms of us being determined in many ways by the social circumstances that surround us. So Ned had used pesticides on the orchard, which was the best knowledge they had at the time. But then there are ramifications decades later. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it's a similar theme of, of wanting to do the right thing and believing you're doing the right thing. And as it turns out, you might have had terrible ramifications or you might have missed something that is really, really important. And that comes up again and again quite regularly in the novel, particularly with the issue of pesticides as well. Um, as far as they're concerned, they've got this wonderful, amazing new chemical. But in reality, there can be terrible, terrible consequences. Well, you don't realise the consequences until much, much later. And that is the art of what you've got here in Limberlost. Limberlost by the way, an interesting name because that's the name of the orchard, but that suggestion then of lost trees, in some ways a lost life. It's partly a history of Tasmania. It encompasses decades, but it's a very touching story of an adolescent's journey and his pathway into adulthood and the elements that touch his life. So once again, Robbie, thank you very much for talking with me today. The book is Limberlost, the author Robbie Arnott, and it's a text publishing release. So thank you, Robbie. Thanks very much, David. Well, there we go, Jen. That's, that's the end of another year of broadcasting. We're all going on a summer, summer holiday. holiday. Mm. <laughs> so uh, we all have uh, a show on all through the summer, but there'll be repeats of authors that we've chatted through through Some the of the year. best of in terms of what interested us or caught mm. our attention. So just stay tuned for that. And Surprise, everyone. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.